Uh, we've been preaching our way through the book of Acts and today is actually our last sermon in the book of Acts for 2018, um, but it's not because we don't like the rest of Acts, we are going to continue it in the years to come. So let us come before God who who is the one who is the author and the one who inspired every word of the word of God which makes it useful and profitable to us, uh, so we need his help in our time together now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have provided everything we need for life and godliness. As your people, there is nothing that we need that you cannot and that you have not provided for us. Lord, so often we see the big gap between what we think we need and what we have. Lord, our deepest and the greatest need of all of us was to have our sin dealt with, which separated us from you. We thank you that you have provided for that in Jesus Christ and you have provided so much more for us. As we look to what you have done in the beginnings of the Christian church, as the gospel spread, Lord, we pray that we be encouraged by your word this morning. Help me by your spirit to speak faithfully and clearly and help us to hear and respond, knowing that we're not just hearing words out of a book, we're hearing the very words of God spoken to us. So help us to be transformed, changed, that we might love you and serve you more deeply. In his name we ask. Amen. I find one of the most difficult things in life is when someone who's really, really nice thinks it's a great idea and out of the depths of their heart to come and help you with something that they're actually not particularly good at. Now, it could be a friend or even someone who's not a friend. They see you working on something and they have some degree of experience in whatever area it is and they think the most loving caring thing I could do for this person is to share of my great wealth of expertise on the area. Certainly those who have young children and and first time they have children, I'm sure they've had every single other parent's expertise um, offered their way. It's a loving gesture and and it's genuine, it's, it's real. But sometimes... Having a little bit of knowledge about something is actually more dangerous than having no knowledge about something. Now, you don't want to hurt the person's feelings. They genuinely want to help, but you know that working with them or even the advice that they're offering is actually going to be more of a hindrance than it is a benefit. Or the worst case scenario, what about the sort of person who is adamant that their way and their experience is far superior and you would be a fool not to listen to them. We experience it from time to time and the Christian community is not exempt from such experiences. As we look at this passage today, we see the response of the early Christians in a way that they thought they had a better idea than even the Apostle Peter. In many ways, it's kind of sad that we're in our last sermon in the book of Acts because I have thoroughly loved working our way through to Acts to the point to which we're up to and, and I'm sure I will continue to love it as we return back in February 2019. 
Because the book records the very early beginnings of the Christian church. We saw how people took on board the mission that Jesus gave them, that you are to go and make disciples of all nations. Because my presence is with you, and I will be with you to the end of the age, and I have all authority. And as everyday Christians had no theological college, they just spent time with Jesus, they'd heard the good news of the gospel, as they trusted that that message of the gospel was the power of God for salvation, as they believed that when he said that he could do this, and his presence would be with us, and he has all authority, they trusted him at his word, and we saw phenomenal growth, people responding to the gospel. We saw the book of Acts is kind of summarised in those words of chapter 1, verse 8, which you've heard probably every week, so you probably have memorised it, that you will receive power when my spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And as the spirit came upon the apostles in Jerusalem at Pentecost, we saw that power come, and we saw they did bear witnesses. Peter proclaimed who Jesus Christ was. He was the promised Messiah, the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament hopes. He was the one who was resurrected. He was Christ. He was God's anointed king. We saw 3,000 people respond in faith to that message. We saw a passionate conviction for gospel urgency. People would share this message. We saw even though that we saw great growth in Jerusalem, the leaders opposed things. They said, you cannot speak about this name at all. They flogged them. They put them in prison. But they knew this message of the gospel was such good news that no commands by any authority in this world would prevent them talking about it. They had to. This gospel is a message of life and death. It's about caring about the eternal destiny of those who are around you. It applies to every single one of us. Even when Stephen was stoned for declaring that Jesus was the Messiah, the one who has risen, the one who is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament hopes, that did not even slow down the growth of the Christian church at all. In fact, as the apostles stayed behind and Paul and his, or Saul in his enthusiasm going door to door to find anyone who would name Christ to drag them off to prison, have them murdered, the everyday Christians, they scattered into other lands and we saw the outworking of that promise of Acts chapter 1 verse 8. The gospel went out to all Judea and Samaria and particularly into Samaria under Philip's ministry. Through everyday men and women who believed that this message about Jesus could not be kept quiet, had to be spoken, was powerful, was life-changing. As Philip, we see the Samaritans responding to the gospel. The word goes back to Jerusalem and they send Peter and John to come out and authenticate. Is this the real work? Has God actually brought a work of salvation amongst these people? And they see with their own eyes the Samaritans whom John in his own gospel records are people that Jews don't associate with, who someone in, in previous conversations with Jesus, John said, actually asked, should I call fire down from heaven on these people? He sees these people have responded to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. 
Then Saul, the one who's going door to door around Jerusalem, when he hears word that this Christian church, this gospel, this proclamation about Jesus risen from the dead had sparked up in Damascus, he travels the way down to Damascus with the intention of bringing the church to total and utter extinction. But the one who was the greatest persecutor of the church, God in his grace and wisdom, stops Saul on that way and he encounters Jesus Christ and he says, this will be my instrument to take the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. That's those who are outside the ethnic lines of the nation of Israel. And finally last week when we got through to chapter 10, we see for the first time the gospel going to a people who are Gentile, that is not of ethnic Israelite origin, and responding in faith to the same salvation, the same blessings on the exact same grounds as the Jewish Christians who had gone beforehand. It was a major turning point. In verse 28 of chapter 10, we see how Peter understood it. He said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it was for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now we saw there was once a major tension that they thought that if you entered into the house of a Gentile or if they came into your house, everything was unclean. Yet Peter ran very quickly, abandoned something that he'd held all of his life because God had shown him, do not call any person unclean. And he re-articulates that again in verse 43, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Like Peter says, all people, all nations who believe in him respond to him in faith or receive forgiveness of sins. The story of Cornelius and his household coming to faith as a Gentile group of people was a major development in three different ways. One way is that they were, for the first time, being saved as Gentiles. As we went through chapter 10, we saw that there were people included in the community of God's people in the Old Testament, but they had to first become as a Jew physically, and even then they had limited access, they had different um, access within doing things. So they were saved as Gentiles. They entered into the exact same salvation and blessings as not only as the fellow Jewish Christians, but even the apostles themselves. But this was also the beginning of it being normative for people outside of Jew- Jewishness and from outside of the nation of Israel to become part of the community of God's people. As events are significant, we tend to talk about them a bit. We've mentioned that Saul's conversion gets recorded three times throughout the book of Acts. And so now what you may have thought when you heard this read, you think, hang on, I think Steve covered all this stuff the last couple of weeks. We see that as Peter goes back and reports to the Christians in Jerusalem the events that had happened, we see there is some repetition as he re-records these events again from his perspective. So today we look at this passage according to this structure. We see Christians criticising Peter's ministry in verses 1 to 3. Peter's wise response to learn from in verses 4 to 17. And lastly, praise be to God alone. 
Christians criticising Peter's ministry. Remember in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three different parables about something which was lost and was found and there was celebration. And the point of each of those parables, he says that there is much rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. And so you'd imagine now, as the Jewish Christians hear message that sinners and a number of sinners repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ, enter into the salvation of our God, if we are a people of God and love the things he loves, surely this is means to celebrate. Well, the news had spread, they'd heard about it. But what we read in verses 1 to 3 isn't a particularly flattering description of how the earliest Christians first responded. And if we're being honest, because of our sinful hearts, it's an attitude we can often see amongst our Christian brothers and sisters today. Now we recognise Christians aren't perfect. The Bible never gives the expectation that as a Christian, Christians are perfect. Yes, our sins have been dealt with the consequences of, but we still struggle with some of our fleshly desires, some of our selfishness that remains. One of the results of that is that Christians can say nasty things, critical things amongst one another. And on this occasion, even though Peter is an apostle, they've still got no problem taking issue with him. Now, we've mentioned the nature of the um, history between the Jews and the Gentiles, how they kind of, the Jews really look down amongst, down upon the Gentiles. As they hear about Peter going to them, bringing the gospel, you think, are they going to complain about that? That Peter would go to them with the good news of the gospel? No, they don't complain about that. Do they complain that these Gentiles have received the word and responded in faith? Actually, no, they don't respond. That's not the issue they take, take up. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. All's going nicely. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticised him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Now when you read the circumcised party, which is the way the ESV is decided to translate it, we're just talking about Jewish Christians. We're not talking like in the Gospel we see the Pharisees who were non-believers who were, who were hostile towards it. Because we see at the end, these same group of people, they glorify God for this has happened. These are Jewish, everyday Jewish Christians. And their issue is they hear that the Gospel is being received by Gentiles is, you ate with them. They had no problems with the fact that the gospel had gone, they'd responded, but they took issue with this minor thing. You stayed with them. You ate in their houses. Now, if we're going to be fair, if you asked a week earlier, Peter probably would have had this same assessment of events. If it wasn't for God giving him that vision, that he had declared all things to be unclean, I mean, all people to be clean. But many people on that day, had entered out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, had had their sins dealt with, they had peace with God, they had an eternity with him. This is something to celebrate. And their issue is, you ate food with them? Now you might think, oh, that's a little bit fickle. We'd never do anything like that. 
Really? How many times have I heard in Christian circles as they hear someone about an event where people had come to trust in Christ, something that we see the angels in heaven are celebrating, and Christians say, and they did that thing at a pub. Or, or you hear about someone, they say, oh, we hear a story that these number of people come to faith. But that was at that church. Or that was at that place where they play that type of music. Or, no, I know this, these people think they came to faith, but this person was the speaker, no way. Now, I'm not trying to say that there's no means, like it's anything goes, there's never a reason to criticise a ministry. But can we actually get back to the fact that there's something worth celebrating if someone has repented and come to faith? Now, by no means am I saying, oh, let's go out, we'll just run a drugs and porn evangelistic event and prevent like that method doesn't matter. If, that, if someone was so stupid to run something like that, and hopefully no one ever would, then you have something to criticise. But even if somehow through God's grace someone got saved through a event like that which should never exist and hope never exists then we should still be able to celebrate the person had come to faith not the means something that should be cause for celebration we can make it into a whinge fest my point is they're, str- they're stumbling on trivial things they're missing the means by which we should be celebrating Now, Peter was quite gracious. Peter could have said, I'm an apostle. God told me, you don't know what you're talking about. You're probably not even Christians. That's not the way he responded, was it? He could have said, you're the problem. Get over it. Me and God, we're like this. You clearly don't understand anything. When Christians encounter others of different understanding... Sometimes we're not the most gracious. But Peter provides a patient, humble and a wise response. Now if you've been in Christian circles long enough, you've probably seen people argue about a particular matter of the Christian beliefs. And I reckon a whole lot of them would resolve or be a lot more civil if people learnt a little bit from Peter's lesson, so often it happens is people just make their big claims, make no attempt to understand the other person, and you just see two people who've come to this conclusion, this conclusion, butting heads without explaining how they've come to those conclusions. What Peter did says, Peter began and explained it to them in order. In other words, Peter didn't just say, you've got it wrong, God told me this. Peter went from the beginning. He took time to explain to them how he came from the conclusion that he'd formerly had, which his opponents still have, what God did, the journey he took him along to bring him to this new conclusion. Just think how much division in churches amongst Christians would be avoided if people actually did that. Rather than just saying, this is what I think and this is what is right, actually take time to explain how you've come to that conclusion and, and for both parties actually listen along the way. Now I've got to admit and apologise to Ray and Samuel, I do this all the time in elders meetings. 
I get excited about something, I've been thinking about something for a long period of time, I get to the conclusion, and I just launch at the, at the elders' meeting with the conclusion, without giving any reason why I think something which is really good at Eastgate could be better by this. And I just go, we should do this. And so, apologies, Ray and Samuel, I'll try to work better on explaining my process along the way. But where it says Peter explained things in order, you might think, well, this order is actually different than what we see in chapter 10. We should understand it in order from Peter's perspective. So the reason why Cornelius' vision is a little bit further down the track is that Peter didn't come to be aware about Cornelius' vision until he went to visit with Cornelius. Now, we've already covered the majority of this material in chapter 10 over the last two weeks. So I'll summarise, but also highlight a few of the features that are here in chapter 11 that don't get mentioned uh, back in chapter 10. It begins with Peter, while he's praying there in Joppa, falls into a trance and has this vision of a sheet with all sorts of animals, both from those that would have been considered clean from Jewish food laws and those which were unclean. And God said to him, rise up, kill and eat. Peter initially is like, no way, nothing unclean will ever go into me. And God says to him, don't you call unclean what I have called clean. Repeated before him three times, it was very clear and vivid that God was communicating to him something that he had deemed to be unclean all of his life, God says is clean. And while he was pondering, wondering what it could mean, there were three Gentiles at his door who had been sent from Cornelius' house as a result of Cornelius' vision. And the Spirit says to Peter, go down and go with them without making any distinction, without viewing them differently as you always had done. So Peter goes along to Cornelius' house in Caesarea, takes six other Jewish Christians along with him. But when you get to verses 13 and 14... We were here about um, Peter talking about Cornelius and the vision that he had. We see a detail not included in chapter 10. Uh, so Peter's talking about what Cornelius did. He told us how he'd seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send a Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. We didn't get told that in chapter 10 starts to make a lot more sense as to why between Cornelius sending his men to go get Peter and then coming, why he's gathered all his family and friends because part of the vision that he received was that this Peter who's coming is going to bring you a message by which you will be saved and all of your household will be saved. Then in verses 15 to 17, we see a threefold repetition how Peter came to the conclusion that these Gentiles were genuinely saved. And every single one of them is an expression of how they entered into the exact same experience of salvation as even the apostles did. In verse 15, he says, The Holy Spirit fell on them just as, or in the same way, as it did on us in the beginning. Peter's saying, they received the Spirit just as we did at Pentecost in the beginning. In verse 16, he remembers the words of Jesus when he says, John will baptize with water. But, but you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. 
Now, Jesus said that to his earliest followers in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, speaking about the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. And Peter now applies this, and he remembers this, and applying to what happened in Cornelius' house, making the connection back to what happened to the apostles. Then ties it all together in verse 17. If then, if God has given the same gift to them as he gave to us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? He says, if their experience of God is exactly the same as what we have experienced, who, who am I to say there's no, that they haven't been saved? Because the very things that I see as my, the work of God's work in my life, this is what happened to them. God did the same things in them as he did amongst the apostles. So Peter's conclusion is, to do anything in response to this, other than praise and thanksgiving to the God who saves, would be to stand in God's way, would be to oppose God, would be to reject the work of God. So as Peter is there alongside his six Jewish Christians that he took alongside him as witnesses, remember Jewish law required three witnesses to establish a matter, so he's doubled up, he's made it sure. How will the people respond? You know how sometimes someone shows you that something that you've always held was wrong? Or use the example of going back to the introduction when someone offers you their advice and you think it's really, really stupid because you've been doing it for years and years and years and then they do it and it's actually right? Because everything within you is like you just want to tell them how bad and wrong their idea is and then they do it and it's indisputable and it's like want to argue with you but it's right in front of me I'm, I've got nothing to say well that's kind of what happened when Peter took the time to articulate how he'd reached the conclusion about going to the Gentiles and, and spending time with them when they heard these things they fell silent and they glorified God saying then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life now, initially, they had lots of things to say. But as Peter explained the journey and how God had revealed himself to him, how God had worked amongst these people, they had nothing. They had nothing but to do but to respond in praise and thanksgiving to the God who saves. Now, you could be tempted to think, well, why don't they praise Peter? I mean, Great evangelistic work, he's, he's been faithful, he's gone over there, he's shared the gospel, people have come to respond in faith. Because what has happened in the life of the Gentiles is something Peter cannot do. No person can do. Sure, he's an apostle, but Paul describes the role of an apostle like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, this is how people should regard us. We are servants of God's, and stewards of his message. That's the role of an apostle. We just serve God, and the message we bring, it's not our own. Our job is to faithfully deliver the message which God has given us. So that's what Peter did. He was an obedient servant. He went as God called him to do, even though it was contradictory to the values that he'd had all of his life growing up, and he conveyed God's message. But the response of repentance and faith. Read there verse 18. God has granted 
or God has gifted, God has given repentance to the Gentiles. Unless God gives that gift to respond to his word, a person will not and cannot. And so often we put an unwarranted pressure on ourselves when it comes to talking to people about Jesus. Because deep down we're worried, how is this person going to respond? And we spend all this time worrying about something that's not our job. Our job is to be a faithful communicator of what Jesus has done. God grants both the gifts of repentance and faith, the two things that we are both to to call people to, but to trust God to do. And if the response is the element to which we're nervous about, it should be encouraging to know that the one who's responsible for that response is the one who has all power, all authority. There's an old saying that says, before you talk to people about God, talk to God about people. Before you talk to people about God, talk to God about the people. Because salvation is a work of God. Before you go talk to someone about Jesus, if you believe that God is the one who does the saving, then it's you want to be asking, God, I need you to bring out new life in this person. I need you to give them the gift of repentance and faith that they might respond to the message that I'm going to deliver to them. Because salvation depends upon God's words. Not ours, not our work. And one of the good implications of that is that means that he can do it through any Christian. And he does. And any positive response which comes out of it is God's gracious provision for which he gets all praise and glory. So what do you do with these verses when you think, with the exception of a couple of little details, like the fact that Cornelius was told that that Peter was going to give him a message that um, brings him salvation in all of his household. Well, there's two significant lessons, there are probably many more, but two that I want to draw out in particular. The first one is, how do we respond to hearing that somebody has come to faith? Are we naturally sceptical? I mean, we want to make sure that someone genuinely is saved. There's, there's, a, there's an extent to which that is healthy and good. But if there's much rejoicing over one sinner who repents in heaven, how does it look when we hear about someone who has all the signs of salvation, yet we are so caught up with the church, the speaker, or the location where that happened? The very earliest Christians, they couldn't see past the method to celebrate. Or what if it's someone you know personally and they talk to you about how God has changed their life, how they've come to trust in Jesus. I can tell you now, that's not the time to launch into a rant about who the person was who led them to Jesus, the church they were at, the music they played the building in which this discussion took place. You want to join with them and celebrate what God has done in their life. Not to say there's no reason to criticise a method or to have a judgement about a method by which it happened. But if you have a genuine concern for that person, the best thing you can do for them is not to rant about 
the things you didn't like around their salvation experience, but to celebrate they have come into the family of God, to disciple them, help nurture them to grow and to understand who they are in Christ and how they can continue to grow as a Christian. If in your discussions with them, everything adds up that God has done a work in their life, and the only thing you don't like is just some personal preference things, then give thanks for what God has done, help them to grow, point them in the right direction for their Christian growth. And the second thing we can learn from is Peter's response and the value of taking time to tell the story. We know one thing Peter didn't do, he didn't just say, this is my conclusion, this is what you want to do, if you're a good Christian you'll do this, otherwise you're an idiot. He didn't say that. Sadly, sometimes Christians do word things very similar to that. But what he did is he took people from where they were and explained in whole story how God had worked to bring him to this new position. As Christians, this is wonderful advice of how do we discuss when we have differences on things and we probably solve some of the tensions that that arise out of those conversations. But our very identity is as a missionary people of God. Missionaries are not just people that that get sent overseas to talk to people about Jesus. Missionaries are people who have been given a mission. And all of God's people have been given a mission to talk to people about Jesus, to bring people to know Jesus and to bring other people who do know Jesus to grow closer to Jesus. We are calling people from where they are now to where God wants them to be. Whether it's from where they are now outside of a relationship with Jesus to Jesus or from where they are now at this level of Christian maturity to a, to a closer walk with Jesus. I think we underestimate the power of story. Explaining the journey of how God took us from where we were to where we are today. I know as we did the discipleship training school, one of the things I encouraged the community groups was to do is actually to put together your story, what God did in, in your life to bring you from where you were to where you are today and to, to share that together when you have a meal together. I think initially I said send everyone and do it one night. I think a wiser idea would be each time you have a meal, have one person share their testimonies, you gather together at dinner time. One of the things that I haven't yet done but I plan to do is to actually create a separate specific video on further explaining what is it, how can we create a story of what God has done in our life in a way that actually looks compelling and convincing. Because sometimes you read through people's testimony and you think, if I was an unbeliever, I would actually think, why on earth is this person a Christian? Because it doesn't look anything good at all. And not only in that process will I do some teaching stuff on it, but I'll also give some examples of telling my own story in that way. But story is not only for bringing people to Jesus for the first time, but drawing them nearer to Jesus that they do know him. You know how when you read through the Bible, you often get encouraged to see God at work in the life of his people? Or you read a biography of a significant Christian and you're just encouraged by what God has done in their life. Guess what? That's the same God that's in in the work and the life of, of all the people in this building. We have a story to tell to encourage and build one another up. 
But that's not the only thing God has given us. The primary thing God has given us is he has given us his word. Every page, every word in the Bible is God's word given to us, profitable to make us fully equipped for every good work. We need to keep seeking God in his word. It's how he's chosen primarily to reveal himself to us today. We need to proclaim the word that God has given to us. We need to live it. There is one phrase that we see throughout the book of Acts, and as we kind of wrap up Acts for 2018, I want to remind us of that refrain that comes throughout the book. It says, And the word grew, and the church grew. Where people are being fed on the very word of God, who delight in getting to know their God through his word, the church always continues to grow. Where people deeply want to know him, where people out of the desire, they see the goodness of that word, they desire to share it with others. As they see it lived out in action, the church grew as the word grew. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, it's so refreshing as we look through the, the book of Acts and also challenging and confronting It's the same gospel that we have today that they had. It's the same spirit that we have today that they had. It was a hostile world that was hostile to the good news of the gospel that they lived in. We live in a world that is hostile to the good news of the gospel. But the gospel still is the power of God for salvation. You still are the one who has all authority. You are still the one who is sending all of your people on your mission. You are still the one who promises your very presence with us. You are still the one who is giving the gifts of repentance and faith as we faithfully declare your message that people can respond in repentance and faith. Lord, you are still at work in your people. We have stories to tell of your goodness, of your grace to us. Lord, we pray that we would see Eastgate as a church growing that we would have stories to tell all of the time as we seek you, as we seek to make you known. That, Lord, it would tell of the glories of your wonderful work and that the praise and thanksgiving would be directed at you, never at the means that we use, our methods or our people. To you alone be all glory and honour. In Jesus' name, amen.